welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. This uh, conversation has been going on for uh, several weeks in reflection on kind of the core question, what did Jesus mean when he said to us that he's come that we might have life? And not just life, but life in abundance. Uh, And the, the word that he uses there is not just life that goes on and on and on forever, but life that has a textural, qualitative difference to it. How do, how, do we, how do we receive that life from above, really, is what he's talking about that Jesus promises and, and brings us into. And so we've taken the kind of the five aspects of the soul, social, intellectual, emotional, physical, and spiritual, and we've asked, what, is, what does abundance look like? How do we steward the gift of us? so that we have capacity to receive the abundance that Jesus wants to give us. And we've taken each of those elements and played around with them to some degree. I think it's critical, again, just to underline what we talked about last week, that is that we're only doing that so that we can talk about it, not because that's how the soul is actually constructed, take a little bit of this, this and this, get them all together and there you've got a soul. But in fact, the soul is intended to be a a holistic entity with aspects of all. When you touch one, you touch everything. When you know know how this is, sometimes when I'm walking with somebody who comes in my office and says, I'm really struggling with with, uh, kind of a depression, my first set of questions in conversation might be, well, how are you you eating? How are you sleeping? Uh, What does exercise look like? because it could be that you can affect emotional health by taking care of the horse God gave you to ride, right? Uh, so so it's, it's the, this holistic approach that we're inviting you, you into. And last week we talked about emotional health and what that looks like, a stewardship of our emotions. And today I wanna talk about the stewardship of our social relationships. Uh, and, and whereas last week, the, the number of texts that specifically address emotional health because it, the, the folks who wrote the Bible didn't have uh, the same layers of concern that we do. Uh, and so there's not a lot of specific texts to address, a lot of implication, a lot of framing of the, of the conversation. But, uh, so there's not as much on that, but this, uh, week, there are more than enough texts to deal with what social and relational health look like. So the challenge this, this week is gonna be to kind of synthesize that down into a manageable uh, chunk, knowing inevitably that we're gonna be missing a whole lot of what is, uh, is, is part of social and relational health as, as spoken of in scripture. But we do wanna talk about what does it mean for me to be a steward of my friendships? What does it mean to be a steward of the people I allow to speak into my life? Uh, What does it mean uh, to, especially in this, uh, for lack of a better term, I I love the phrase that uh, Sayers has been uh, suggesting and others, but this idea of of a digital Babylon, a, a social media construct that promises 
infinite numbers of connections and delivers no real relationship. We have 2,000 friends on Facebook, not one of whom would come if we called at three o'clock in the morning. And, and not only is, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it promising and not delivering, it's actually taking away from real capacity for relationship. I don't know if you saw the work of art that was published here uh, a few months ago where a photographer uh, digitally altered pictures that he had taken uh, to remove the devices from people's hands. And here you have husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, mother, father, sister, sitting at table, completely preoccupied with nothing. Powerful, powerful commentary on our culture that is now producing anime, alienation, isolation in unprecedented numbers with the obvious outcomes of higher degrees of anxiety, uh, both social and otherwise, higher degrees of depression, uh, because we're just not built to live in isolation or faux community. We're built to live in real community with real relationships with people with whom uh, we, do, we do life. The foundation of this is Genesis, uh, as you might imagine, where God speaks us into being and from the get-go we are this unique combination of dust and deity, the, the dirt and the breath of life. And, and shortly after that, we get the first hint uh, in, the, in the way the narrative unpacks this of the unique nature of the soul. So in Gen Genesis chapter two, uh, uh, in, in two passages later on, so two seven, God takes the dust of the earth, breathes into it the breath of life. We become a living soul with those five dimensions we've talked about. But then down a few verses, about 10 or so verses later, this cryptic statement is made. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. Not good echoes in a negative way, a shadow way, the multiple times in chapter one that God has described elements of his creation as being either good or very good. And here, clanging into the silence comes our first not good. Remember that good here in chapter one is not a moral category, good versus bad or evil. It's a category of function. It's a category of beauty. Actually, the same Hebrew word that is translated good is elsewhere translated beauty. So when God looks at his creation in chapter one, he describes it as beautiful, as having a form and a function that are ideally suited to one another, that it actually works, it operates. So when God says of his creation, it's good, he's saying, I can trust this, it, it works. When we get then to chapter two, verse 18, and he says, it's not good for the man to be alone, we need to sit up and take notice. What he's saying here is that it does not work. It is non-functional. It's inoperable for persons to be alone, for persons to be in isolation. And while the rest of that chapter unpacks that in particular relationship between men and women, in particular between husband and wife, 
we can easily broaden that out as the way the narrative unfolds to suggest that it's true whether the outcome is marriage or husband-wife relationship, it simply does not work. We cannot be human in isolation from other humans. We need each other in order to be persons. And I'm gonna suggest that that is a five-dimensional pattern of relationships. Social, intellectual, emotional, physical, and spiritual. We need relationships of intimacy to know and be known in all five dimensions in order for us to be human. I struggle obviously, as I've mentioned before, with the use of the word intimacy here, but I can't think of a better word, and we have to, we have to kind of move it away from the way our, our cultural engagement trains us in it to understand that intimacy is to know and be known. So I need, in order to be human, to know others and to be known by others in all five dimensions. And no single relationship can carry the weight of my full being intimacy needs. So if a marriage, for example, uh, is counted on to meet all five aspects of intimacy, it'll crush the marriage. Married men and women, single married, uh, single women and men need relationships in five dimensions, appropriately boundaries, which we'll talk about in a minute, in order to be, to be human. It's not good. We don't work in isolation. However, that said, you'll notice that down in verse 24, he adds to that and says in this cryptic statement, this is why a man leaves his father and his mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Here it's highlighting a, a slightly uh, other aspect of this in which we maintain tension. So here it's speaking again, and primarily relative to marriage, but we can uh, extrapolate out from that to this understanding, because you'll notice here, it's assumed in that culture that women would leave their families of origin and simply join into and become part of their husband's family of origin. In fact, by the time Moses is speaking this, women have become property that simply join into the holdings of the father's family of origin. Not the sons whom they married, but the father's family of origin. And Moses is saying, guys, this is not gonna work. This is unoperable. Both women and men need to leave their families of origin, be joined to one another for the possibility of oneness. This is the kind of the sociological term of, of differentiation that is, is critical for, uh, for, for humanity. So you'll notice now these two things are held in tension. We are built for radical community we need each other in order to be fully ourselves, and we need, are built for radical individuality. They both are in interplay. We, they are, are in intention. Does that make sense? And in fact, the community is logically prior because the community enables individuality without isolation. We're connected in relationships, we're connected in love, we're connected, we're part of the family, and so now we are free to be our wild and glorious selves because we have home. 
We're not built for isolation, we're built for community, and that community is intended to enable and empower individuality. So, so this idea of dimensionality here is so, so critical, and you'll notice that, that, that this idea of differentiation is built into our fabric. Uh, it's why you have children. You have children to get rid of them, <laughs> right? You have about 18 years or so to train them in adequacy so that they can live without you. That's what's supposed to happen. Why? Because Moses says here, every generation needs to be free from the previous generation so they can make their own mistakes. Because every family since Genesis 3 has been dysfunctional. <laughs> right? So what happens? How do we limit the spread of dysfunction? Well, every generation, you leave home, and now you're free to make your own mistakes, right? And, and hopefully train your children so that they, at about 18, 19, 20, leave home so that they can make their own mistakes. This is, by the way, what it means ultimately to honor your father and mother. It's not ultimately about slavish obedience to their every woman wish. It's about becoming a whole person independent of them for the purpose of re-engagement with them as an adult. D does that make sense? So, so, so this pattern of social relationships is essential uh, as we move into higher levels of health. We are built uh, for, for uh, a radical uh, relationship that enables radical individuality. Each of us will likely choose one of two primary paths then on our road to full personhood, on our road to full Christ-likeness. We will either choose a, pa a life, a path of, of marriage, or we will choose or have chosen for us a path of singleness. Both are valid choices. Both have the same telos, the same outcome, Christ-likeness or full personhood. And both will get you there. One is not better than the other. Because it's important to remember the goal is not to be happy though married. Did you get that? Okay, fine. <laughs> Sit, work with me here. The, the, or to be happily single. Happy is irrelevant. Holy is the point. Wow. Holiness is the point that moves us towards Christ-likeness. So, uh, so, so, so that's the, the, the framework that we're in, invited into and, and these, these boundaried selves, each, each dimension of the self has a boundary around it and we engage then in appropriate levels of relational intimacy with others so that we can walk in proximity without enmeshment. We can walk in proximity, we can be in each other's gravitational pull without becoming enmeshed with one another. I'm not counting on anybody to complete me. If I'm not complete before I meet him or her, I dare not inflict myself upon him or her because I will become a parasite to them, right? So I'm moving to wholeness so that we can walk in proximity and that requires the boundary itself that we talked about last time. So. How do we engage in this? Well, no surprise, Jesus has some advice on this. 
Uh, we'll pick it up where we were last week, Mark's Gospel, one of the teachers of the law, one of the experts in Torah, one of the experts in the way that life ought to be under God, comes to Jesus, noticing how he has given his opponents a good answer, asks him this key question of all of the possible ways to live. What's the best way? And Jesus says, well, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. Last week I pointed out that this uh, young rabbi, this scribe, is using Torah or commandment in a Jewish way, not a Greek way. It's not a law as in a, a kind of ordinance for city parking. It is Torah, which is the, the instruction. What are, what are the rules of the game that God has given us? And of the rules of the game that God has given us, which is the greatest? And so Jesus begins by saying, well, let's be clear. All of this aligns around a single heartbeat. The Lord our God is one. We live and move and have our being in him. Remember from last week? So how do we align ourselves with this single, central, simple focus at the center of the universe? We align ourselves in love. Having received love, we now love him, we love ourselves, and we love others as we love ourselves. And we do this primarily, no surprise, by first of all, letting God love us. That, by the way, is often the most difficult of the whole thing. Because we love transactionally everywhere else. You can't love God transactionally. Not ultimately. Sooner or later, you will be brought to the level of which you believe you have earned his love. And my prayer is that you discover it sooner rather than later, right? Uh, that you recognize that it, he doesn't love you because he loves you. He's a lover. What else is he going to do with you who are the voice, the expression of his creative love? So he doesn't love you more when you serve well. He doesn't love you less when you say no. He doesn't love you more when you're righteous and raising your hands in worship and he doesn't love you less when you're engaged in the very act of catastrophic self-destruction that we call sin. You need to get good at letting God love you for no good reason. Otherwise, you're gonna be looking at everybody else to provide for you what only God can provide for you, right? Uh, so, so we begin by letting God love us, then we echo that back to him, then we accept the truth about what God says of us. That's called humility. We don't argue with God when he tells us how good or how beautiful we are. We say thank you and then seek to live out of that goodness, out of that beauty in our relationships with others because once you see the beauty that God has spoken into you, the goodness that God has spoken into you, it's not very hard to start to see it in other people 
because you don't have to do it comparatively, you don't have to do it competitively, there's enough beauty to go around. Do you see what he's inviting us into here? So Jesus invites us into this in very strategic ways. Uh, his friend John gathers it up this way, First John chapter four, because we love because he first loved us. So whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. He has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. Why? Because that person is just as much a word of God spoken as you are. Here's the problem. If I don't see myself as loved, it's gonna be hard for me to see you as loved. But if I do realize that he has spoken me into being and loves me, then I have room to breathe in my love for others. And I think it's critical. I got myself into a little bit of trouble last week, so I'm gonna dig the hole a little deeper this week by suggesting that God's love for your enemies is as profound as his love for you. I, I, I mentioned that when anybody ever prayers or thinks, think, prays or thinks of a prayer, God hears their prayer, whether Muslim or Jew or whomever, partly because there's nobody else up there to listen. <laughs> he, he, he's the only one there. And he is as close to them as he is to you. They are as precious to him as you are to him. Now I do need to make a distinction. Jesus is very clear. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. I'm wondering, however, if there might be all kinds of different ways to Jesus. We can find our way to Jesus and from there home, right? And so this is what I'm gonna suggest to you, that we orient ourselves to people with whom we have differences in the way that God has oriented himself to us. Love first as a way of leading home. In fact, John is very clear. You cannot look at somebody on Facebook or on, 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 on your Insta feed or on your tweeting, twittering, <laughs> and be, if your visceral response is contempt, you're on the wrong side of God's love for you. God loves the people for whom you, that you regard with contempt as much as he loves, and, and whether they're a political figure, or an entertainment figure, or somebody from a foreign land, you, you, we don't, as disciples of Jesus, we don't get to vote on who Jesus' brothers and sisters are. And in fact, he's really clear on this, right? Matthew chapter 25, at the end of the age, the nations are gonna come and he's gonna make, it's very easy for him to dis divide into sheep and goats. When I was naked, you gave me clothes. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you nursed me to health. Wait a minute, when, when did we see you? Well, when the person you viewed with contempt 
was in prison, you didn't rejoice, you went and visited him. When the person you thought was unworthy was homeless, you provided food and shelter. When you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Oh, Jesus, if we'd known it was you, we would have been all over that. Yeah, that's the point. You didn't know it was me. We can't say we love God and treat our brother or sister with contempt regardless of their race or their ethnicity or their political beliefs or their religious affiliations or their, their lifestyle choices. We, we don't get a vote. There's no thems to whom we are the us. Every them is an us who doesn't know it yet. So this is what Jesus invites us into as part of relational stewardship, do you see? And so it becomes very, very clear on this. Now here's the deal. As people are gathered in, we're gonna have some problems because everybody's as weird as you are, <laughs> right? And it's very easy to, to, to align with our tribal identities, to hang with the folks in, in the echo chamber that is Facebook, right? Where, where, where and, and statistically, the algorithms are, are, are devised in such a way that for the most part, the people who read your posts, and I'm using Facebook as an old medium, I know that, you're all young and hip and cool, so you don't ever use Facebook anymore, but nonetheless, uh, it is not different in the other, other, other mechanisms of, of, of social media where we basically are talking to ourselves. And every like is just somebody who already thought what you think that's all it is, for the most part. And, 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 and so we, we, don't, we, we, we have this, this, this understanding that when people come in, in genuine kingdom life, we're gonna have some challenges. So Paul writes to us and says, here are some practical realities of this relational stewardship. Philippians chapter two. If there is any encouragement from being united with Christ, if there's any comfort from his love, if there's any common sharing in the spirit, if there's any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Anybody have your plans changed for this afternoon? Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I love that little joke that he put in there. Did you catch it? You're conceited with absolutely no reason to be conceited. It's empty, it's vain. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but, uh, uh, but each of you to the interests of others. He's really inviting us into a radical re-understanding of our relationships uh, in, in, the, in the social realm. Our capacity is worked by the, our capacity for connection is worked by the Spirit and is maintained by us really ruthlessly by the power of the Spirit pulling out the weeds of selfish ambition and empty conceit and humility that acts for the good of others. Humility, remember, is not putting myself down. It's not comparing myself negatively to others. 
Humility at the end of the day is agreeing with God about what is true concerning me, which has nothing to do with anybody else. This is why, by the way, uh, the kind of, uh, uh, there's a playful competitiveness that encourages in a way that is mutually, that's not what I'm talking about. But we do live in a culture of really unhealthy competitiveness where I not only want to win, I want you to lose. That's not healthy to produce the kind of relational stewardship that we need. It just isn't. Uh, and and it will it ultimately will we we see it playing itself out where where we'll find ways to kneecap our opponents so that we we win we win without even considering that if I have to win by somebody else losing we have lost because we're part of the image of God if you aren't fully yourself then my capacity to be to to image God is compromised. I want to engage in this mutually supportive, mutually empowered stewardship that, 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 that brings us into celebration even of, the, of somebody else getting the role or the position or the uh, gift that I, I would have liked for myself. I want to be celebrating others rather than fearful of their success. Uh, Paul goes into it even a little bit more fully in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, look, uh, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, and so I beg you to live a life that is worthy of your calling, worthy of the calling you have received. Here's how. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient with one another. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You, 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 you've, you've already figured this out, but Paul is just saying, guys, what we're after here is a boatload of hard work for a long time. Because there are some people that you're just really, it's just very easy for you to get along with, and, and you have a place of identity, you connect with them, Right, and there are other people you just wonder, what in the world? You are a dandelion in the lawn of my life. How can we limit the damage you are causing? Now, please notice, I'm not speaking about toxic relationships and so on and so forth. I'm just talking about people who, even though sometimes toxic, need to be loved within the frame of a work of a boundaried existence. I don't get to them anyone and Paul says, here's the hard work. You gotta be humble. You gotta be gentle. You can't use your strength for yourself. You've gotta use it to serve. You've gotta have patience with one another, right? You've got to have the ability to put up with one another in love. I love that phrase, because in Greek it's even more powerful. Sometimes all you can do is just put up with one another. Okay, let's start there. Let's start there. Why? Well, because he says there's really, at the end of the day, only one body. There's only one spirit. There's only one Lord. You've been called to one hope when you were called. There's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one is given the grace as Christ has apportioned it. Did you catch what he's after here? 
The reason we strive towards unity, the reason we strive towards oneness, the reason the Spirit is working oneness in the body is to allow the full flourishing of our individual identity. Diversity flows out of unity. Uniqueness is made possible by community. Some of you will experience it this, this Thursday. You'll be sitting around the table realizing you've got some wackadoodle folks sitting around the table with you. <laughs> and it's like, how in the world did they just not get, how, did, how is the family tree that I'm a part of the same thing? How in the, how, how? And if you can't think of anybody at the table for whom that is true, it's probably then you <laughs> that they're all looking at and thinking, how in the world did she get there, right? Here's what makes that conversation possible, their family. It's because they have a place of connection that enables the full flourishing of their individuality, right? And my guess is that there will be some conversations that you don't wanna get into. Okay, that's fine, if that's, but remember the family is more important than being right on politics or religion. You don't have to convince anybody of anything you have to live with love however so so the strategy for Paul is live with love be connected in 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 relational community and then your individuality and all its wonderful uniqueness is able to flourish he goes on a little bit further strategically here's how it goes on end of chapter 4 don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths or for that matter your thumbs. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. You notice how important then relationship is so you can build them up according to the needs they actually have. It may benefit those who listen. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? By working against what he is working for. Chapter four tells us clearly, what is he working for? Unity. You wanna grieve the Spirit? Work against that. So strategically, he says, um, get rid of bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Those grieve the spirit. Instead, be kind. Be compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ in God forgave, God, in Christ God forgave you. There's a strategy there, isn't there? Should we take a moment and remind ourselves how God forgave us? He didn't forgive you when you asked. He, gave, he forgave you so that you could ask. He forgave you before you even thought of asking. That's how I want to live in relationship to the people who hurt my feelings, who wound me. I want to walk, I want to be so solid in my identity as beloved son of God in whom he is well pleased. 
that I can risk forgiving. Now that's, again, doesn't underline, undermine the boundary stuff that we've talked about, but it does suggest to me that that idea of forgiveness has got to lead, not follow. I'll forgive you when you've earned my trust. Well, when exactly do you think that's gonna happen? <laughs> I'll forgive you so you never hurt me again, never betray me again. Like God forgave you? Mm-mm. We are invited into a radically different kind of community. In fact, that is like the community we were built for in the first place. Be compassionate, be kind. Follow God's example then as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Clearly words matter, so make them count for good. Make them count for health and hope. I am very grateful for the resurgence of interest in Mr. Rogers. I don't know if you have seen the movie or will, but do. Or go to Netflix and see the, see the documentary. There is a conspiracy of kindness in a culture that is becoming increasingly fragmented along tribal lines with difference. We've gotta be on the side of kindness. We've gotta be on the side of kindness. And of course, forgiveness is part of that in fact, I think the degree to which I don't forgive is the degree to which I have yet to walk in the forgiveness God has given me. Paul sums it up in, five, in chapter five uh, with this cryptic verse. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. And while that speaks to marriage, husbands submitted to wives, wives submitted to husbands, it also is characteristic of the patterns of our relationship. Submit here simply means to bring yourself into mutual alignment so you can walk together towards Christ-likeness. That's what we're invited into, right? I don't need to be right. I need to be in alignment with you and we work together towards outcomes. And the outcome that we're working towards is a community into which people will be able to look and say, huh, those people love one another. How do I get into that? That's what we're invited into. Aligning ourselves requires humility, confession, forgiveness, kindness, goodness, and all of that continues to form the character of Christ in us. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.